Regenerative Medicine today. This is Leah Kaufman. My co-host, A.J. Malkowitz, will tell you about what you'll hear today in podcast number five. In today's podcast, we're joined by Dr. Amit Patel. Dr. Patel has treated heart failure patients all over the world with their own stem cells. So far, these patients' hearts appear to regain a good measure of pumping power without negative side effects. Let's hear from Dr. Patel now. We're talking today with Dr. Amit Patel, who's the Director of Cardiac Cell Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Patel. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about this uh, really exciting new therapy that you're working on for heart failure. First of all, tell me what the problem is with heart failure. So heart failure, just as the name sounds, is when your heart fails, it stops working. There's 5 million people in the U.S. who have this problem. And every year, there's about half a million new people. So you wonder, well, how come the number doesn't grow to 5.5 million or 6 million? Problem is, there's another half million who die every year. So that's why the number always stays at about 5 million. And what causes it? It's pretty simple things. Everything that you hear of, of all the things that are bad for you about your heart, if you don't fix them early on enough, they all lead to heart failure. And this is... As you said, a deadly condition. And what is the state-of-the-art therapy for heart failure? What, what are the standard treatments? So the standard treatment, so if you have heart failure, which basically means your normal heart is a pump. So a pump has a normal ejection fraction, which means the percentage of how much blood that's in your heart that gets pumped out with every heartbeat. Normal is about 50 to 65%. These people with heart failure are half of that. They're only in the 35% range. So if you think of it as a cup of water, it's normally half of that cup should go out with every heartbeat. For people with heart failure, only a third to a quarter goes out. So the rest of it still stays in your heart, so your body doesn't get all the blood flow and oxygen it needs. And over time, because you can't get that oxygen to all your organs, like your brain, your liver, your kidneys, your lungs, everything starts shutting down. And in order to treat this, the most standard treatment, as for all diseases, is You push pills on people, and then you get IV medications. And those help, in most cases, to at least slow the disease down. None of it cures it. When that stops helping, they put pacemakers in that actually work in a little fancier way than the regular ones you hear about. They actually help pump different chambers of the heart all at the same time to help improve the ejection fraction. Problem is, they cost somewhere between... Fifteen to fifty-five thousand dollars. So they, some of them cost more than the price of most fancy cars. But they only help a third of the people who you try them out on. A third of the people get better. A third of the people stay same, and a third actually get worse, which is the big problem. But at least if they don't work, you could stop the device or take it out. So it's not a permanent problem. If that doesn't help you, you could actually put what's known as a ventricular assist device. Fancy word for partial artificial heart big operation. There's risks of bleeding, having infections, and blood clots. And you're hooked up to hardware, so you do become a cyborg, basically. But a lot of these people are very functional. They work on batteries, and their heart still works. And the initial versions of these, they've been around for 20 years, and they do help people, and a lot of them can get heart transplants. So this is a good bridge to transplant. For some people who can't get heart transplants, this is a permanent therapy for them, so they become battery-operated forever. 
And but what really is their lifespan as a battery operated? Uh, the furthest so far we know of is probably about five years in the best case scenario. And what sort of functional ability does the person on a VAT have? So some of the best people that I know, uh, there's the infamous German mailman who actually rides his bicycle and delivers mail every day with his VAT. So, I mean, you can be pretty functional. So, I mean... They are good devices, but they just haven't been tweaked to help a lot of people, and they cost even more. They are somewhere in the fifty dollars to $100,000 range. So when we think of these therapies, they're good for places that have lots of insurance and big money. Mm-hmm. really doesn't help in most places around the world. And I would imagine there's not a lot of people even qualified to work with VADs and perform yeah, surgeries it, and implant them. In it's the pretty limited, and you need a lot of support and infrastructure. The easy part is actually doing the surgery. Then it's all the teaching the patients and the families how to take care of the devices, the pumps, make sure they don't get infected, and troubleshooting. So it's a very pretty involved you know, therapy. And, of course, what everyone knows is heart transplants. Mm-hmm. So it would be great if everyone could get a heart transplant. Not, because... 10 to 20 different medications, worrying about rejection. I mean, you're not plugged into a device, but you still have to get biopsies. You have to worry about rejection. And the 10-year survival is about 50%. Plus, you have to wait for that heart in the you first You still have place. to wait for one. If and, you and it may not one. be one. It may not be one. Because there's a huge shortage of donor organs. So tell us about your approach to heart failure. So you've heard of all of these things that might help you and do help you, but... If you could treat this heart failure early on, before it becomes end stage, then you might be able to avoid all of these things. And if you could do this using something as simple that doesn't have major side effects, something as simple as your own cells. So what we came up with is, how can the body heal itself? Which, just to interrupt you, is pretty much the crux of all regenerative medicine. That's it. Yes. I mean, it, Please go on. <laughs> it, it's true, and that's the whole thing is everyone thinks it rocket science, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of figuring out how the body naturally does this anyways. Right. And just harnessing that or retraining the body to work like it should. So what we did was first take bone marrow cells. So you're like, well, why bone marrow cells? We know bone marrow helps fix everything in the body. So this that's not something new. People have been doing bone marrow transplants for about 15 to 20 years with success because they make red cells, white cells, I mean, pretty much all the different types of cells that help carry oxygen to get rid of waste, help fight infections. And it turns out these cells all come from the same, you know, I don't want to go into embryology, but it's the middle layer of mesoderm where most of these cells come from. Well, that's what helps make muscle, cartilage, bone, fat. So there is actually some science behind it, even though a lot of people still think it's too early to even think about putting these cells in patients. And we looked at, well, how can you use bone marrow to do anything? Mm -hmm. Well, we found out that when you cause injury to the heart that there's cells that actually do come to the heart. Well, you're like, well, where do they come from? Well, they come from the bone marrow. So you're like, well, then how come every heart doesn't get fixed every time you have a heart attack? Problem is the heart's a little too smart for its own good. So these stem cells or progenitor cells, whatever you like to call them, do come to the heart, but they get diluted out. So for every one stem cell that shows up, there's probably a million other cells like fibroblasts or other cells that actually are trying to prevent that heart attack from spreading and killing the entire heart. So the heart has to decide when you're having a heart attack, do you make a wall 
so the whole heart doesn't get damaged, or do you keep fighting it and hoping that you win? Well, the heart's smart enough to know that if you keep fighting it, you might lose the entire organ. Whereas if you build a big wall up, you'll lose that area, but the rest of it survives, and you could go back and fight another day. Let me just reiterate back to you what you're saying. that So there are these progenitor cells from the bone marrow that come in and attempt to heal the area of the heart that gets damaged, say, during a heart attack. But the heart is not letting them go into that space. It's basically sequestering off the damaged part to keep the damage from spreading. Is that the case? That's part of it. The other thing is it's the dilution factor, that there are stem cells, but there's more other type of progenitor cells that actually specifically are going to cause scar. I see. Because we tend to heal with scar tissue rather than with functional working tissue, and the heart is one such organ. And most other creatures, even the neat creatures that have the ability to regenerate limbs and everything, they have the same process that they do form scar, but after they form the scar to initially get over the injury, then that scar remodels and almost gets absorbed. Hmm. And then the new stem cells come in and regenerate. Hmm. So we've sort of lost that ability in most of our organs, that once we make scar, that's it. We don't have the ability to melt scar away and then send in the new stem cells or new troops to rebuild everything. So what does your approach do to combat this problem? So what we do is we take weakened muscle Mm -hmm. and inject cells right into the muscle. And so we take millions of cells into an organ that has trillions of cells. So we don't truly believe that we're just regenerating. Everyone hopes we regenerate either new muscle or blood vessels, but what we're doing is probably a combination of three things. So a very small percentage actually is contributing to new muscle formation or new blood vessels. There's a process called fusion, where the weakened cells get fused to the new cells we inject. And actually what they're doing is providing new machinery. Mm-hmm. So it helps the weakened heart cells work better. And that probably happens in about 40 to 50% of the cells that we inject. And the last part, which is very difficult to figure out, is when you inject these cells, they act like a homing beacon. It's a huge light that says, hey, I'm in this area, it's really bad area, send reinforcements. So it's like a GPS for the heart. It tells all the cells in the body, I'm here, everyone had forgotten about this area of the heart, and now send all the troops and growth factors and cells that help rebuild the area. And that's probably a more realistic reason of why these patients that we have treated seem to improve one to three months after the therapy. Because if they were just regenerating, it wouldn't make sense scientifically. Mm -hmm. The reason is you're saying that you're taking this organ, you've injected a couple of million cells, and then you're almost growing at the rate of a rapid tumor, all these cells, and then a couple of months it stops. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't happen. You pretty rapidly hit a level of improvement, but then it stops, which, as you say, does imply that you're not getting tumor growth. These aren't differentiating into bone where they shouldn't, for instance. I mean, if these are the same cells that can help you heal your bone, you don't want to be growing bone inside somebody's heart muscle. So somehow they're getting all the right signals. And and that's what it comes down to. Everyone's always worried about, are you going to grow bone in the heart, or is it going to grow strange nerves? Well, I think the cells are smart enough that they're almost like an open slate. They're like, you put me in the right environment, and I sort of adapt to that environment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the best example of that would be if you're like the most popular person in college, no matter whether you're hanging out with the jocks 
you're hanging out with the geeks. You just fit into that environment and you acclimate to it and you do well. These cells can chill. They can really hang out. It's like, <laughs> I mean, the best example of a person who sort of fits that is Ferris Bueller, right? <laughs> That's right. Everyone liked Bueller. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter who you were and who he hung out with, he could really adapt to every environment. So if you have cells that if you put them in the bone area, they sort of act like bone and work well with bone and help, you know, grow infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You put them in the heart, they act like heart. And so in the lab, we've been able to demonstrate it, and a lot of other scientists, that you could take bone marrow cells and putting them in the right culture environment, you can make them into neurons that produce dopamine to help potentially patients with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. If you put them for for patients who have islet cells, they can actually produce insulin for diabetes, for cardiac, and, I mean, a number of disorders. Now, it seems that cardiac has moved forward faster than other disease states. We don't hear about a lot of cell transplants, at least not a lot of bone marrow-derived cell transplants into other organs or into the brain. Actually, it isn't. So as much as the media pays attention to cardiac, Mm -hmm. there's already bone marrow cell programs for orthopedics that have been around for years. Really? Here in the U.S., and people just don't know about it. I was wondering if you can inject cells into somebody's heart, why aren't we healing cartilage and bones and things? They already have been. So there actually is an FDA-approved product for cartilage cell therapy. It's been around for years. Hmm. It's just that they never had the marketing and media behind it as much as everything else right now. We'll have to get them on regenerative medicine today to talk about that. That's it. I mean, (laughs) bone, you could do a lot of the bone grafts you could do with bone marrow cells. Well, and did you have difficulty getting FDA approval for something this seemingly radical? To be honest, I didn't. Yeah, but Uh, other groups have. Other people have, but it really comes down to not only the science behind it, but what's the methodology. So it's true. I work in many different countries around the world, but we still use the same rules and regulations as if we were doing it with the FDA. Speaking of different countries around the world, did you recently treat a very famous singer? Of Hawaiian origin for Uh, heart failure? Yes, I did. We're talking about Don Ho, who, as everybody knows, sings Tiny Bubbles, among other charming songs. And he's pretty happy with his treatment. How far out is he now? So he's seven weeks out. Oh, not very far. No, but he had pretty close to death ejection fraction as you could have. His ejection fraction was 10. Wow. And just tell our listeners what that's like. How, how ten. are you bed bound at 10? 10 means you can probably get up from a chair, walk to the door in your kitchen and you're short of breath. Miserable. Yeah. I mean, you're very limited uh, for him. He'd barely be able to finish one song just standing there. So he has this great chair and everything that he sits in and he'd still be pretty winded. And how's he feeling now? Objective data we won't have for him until the end of February. Mm-hmm. But clinically, last Sunday, so this is only six and a half weeks after the procedure, he was able to do an entire 10 song show. He's and performing seven weeks that after. That was his first show that he's done since Thanksgiving of huh. last year. I'd say that's probably a pretty good sign. That's probably a good sign. His defibrillator didn't go off. Yeah. So he has no complications. And he called me up after the show and said, 
hey, we're doing well. Good. And he's expanding to now two shows a week, so Sunday and Thursday. Did his cells come from his bone marrow? So his cells were actually the Star Trek therapy of this. So we started with bone marrow, and we still continue to work with bone marrow, but his therapy actually was with blood-based cells. He went to Thailand to get his procedure. Mm -hmm. So the cells were taken from a pint of blood and sent to the lab in Israel, which is a company called Theravite, which does blood-based cell therapy. They processed his cells and added some growth factors, and they took somewhere between 20 to 50,000 cells and produce between 5 and 50 million cells in five days. So there's no animal products, no embryos. This is strictly using his own cells in the right environment again to brew his cells. And in five days, they flew those cells back to Thailand, and they were injected directly into his heart through a minimally invasive surgical procedure, which I performed Mm -hmm. with a lot of the surgeons there in Bangkok. So you're not opening up his chest? No, this is is keyhole surgery. Okay. At the end of the operation, he was awake and talking. So this is as minimally invasive as possible, but as scary as it sounds, most anesthesiologists wouldn't even give a general anesthetic to someone with an ejection fraction of 10. So we work in a very safe cardiac hospital. All they do is cardiac procedures in this hospital. So the anesthesiologists are all specially trained in cardiac anesthesia. All the nurses, everyone is used to doing just heart surgery. I know you're running two trials currently in the U.S., and by trials I mean early clinical trials. So the number of patients you can treat is probably pretty limited by the protocol and whatnot. But you've actually treated quite a number of people out of the country, according to FDA (laughs) standards, but nevertheless. About how many people do you think have had this procedure? Between how many patients I've done and the people that I've trained have performed, we're getting over 100 patients now. And how long out is your earliest patient? So the earliest patient that had a bypass operation, so coronary IRE bypass and cells, is going to come on four years this year. And how is that patient doing? He's still alive, doing very well. So you're not seeing side effects from this procedure? Nobody has grown a bone yet in their heart? Not that we know of. Okay. And we've also had no problems with arrhythmias or irregular heartbeats, which has been a common concern with other types of stem cells or muscle-derived cells. Is there something different about your technique that prevents arrhythmia from happening? More than my technique, it's the type of cells. There are many other places around the world that have reproduced the data that I've been able to generate with bone marrow cells. It's just that they've taken a little bit longer. So all the critics that I've had now for the past couple of years in terms of these cells, most places are starting to find very similar results that I had found two years ago. So these cells are perfect for this application. They, they're they not causing arrhythmias because they're happy cells. They're happy cells. And okay. if you put them in a safe environment, they work well. We don't know exactly what they do. But the key is that they're safe. Now, one of your trials is to find out exactly what's happening. Is it not one of the trials in the U.S.? So the first safety trial we have is using what I had mentioned before, one of the treatments, which is a ventricular assist device and putting cells in. So half the heart gets cells, the other half gets saline or salt water. And when these patients get a heart transplant, we get their heart, 
and do the tissue analysis. So you'll probably ask, well, if their hearts are supposed to get better, how come they're going to get a heart transplant? Well, we're taking hearts that are totally burned out. Mm -hmm. So the likeliness that they regenerate or recover is very small. These patients are sicker than the other patients. A lot sicker. I mean, these are not usually the walking, talking patients with poor ejection fractions like Don Ho. They are almost in the hospital, if not in the hospital, bedridden, just waiting for a heart transplant. So what you see here is some of the things I'm talking about, even though it's regenerative medicine, a lot of what we're doing in cardiac right now is probably more rejuvenation than true regeneration. We're taking existing weakened muscle, making it stronger, work more efficiently. We're probably not doing the cool stuff as everyone thinks is just truly regenerating. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. In animals, I think the world has been cured of all mouse and rat heart failure, <laughs> but in humans, we're still working on it. And have you had a chance to to look at any of these hearts, these original hearts for people who are going to get donor hearts? We currently have one that's being examined right now. We're okay. still looking for all the information because as strange as it sounds, we know what we're looking for, but in the end, no one's ever seen it before. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to look for something which you don't know really exists because a lot of the analysis looking at under microscopy is pattern recognition. So you could stain it with different types of antibodies, and if they light up or don't light up, you could see things. But a lot of the things people do in animals is taking like male cells and injecting them into females so then they can look for Y chromosome. Well, you can't do that with your own cells. Because you've got one person's own cells going into their own organ, there's no marker on the cell surface. There's no antibody. There's nothing that differentiates it from any other kind of cell. Right. So you could say that you injected bone marrow and you put it into the heart. So you could take some bone marrow labels, and then since they're CD34, for example, which is the type of cells we put in, but even those labels... If you leave those cells in culture just for a day with nothing other than the patient serum, all those markers change. And presumably they're going to change because you're putting them in the environment of the heart. Right. So they're they're going to stop being those stem cells. Right. They're going to lose those markers and become something else. Okay. So we're looking for events that are happening, such as fusion. So normally the heart doesn't have cell turnover, which means cells normally don't divide and become new heart cells. The percentage of that in a normal heart is less than 0.00005%. So it is a rare event to see mitosis or cell division in a normal cardiac myocyte. So we are looking for such rare events that if that is happening, that means we have done something in the heart that normally does not occur. I was thinking about, I was imagining that I was you, and I was thinking about (laughs) what kind of leap of faith it must be to um, get to this point where you figure you can just take somebody's own cells out and get a big needle and stick them right back in their heart and see what happens. I mean, how... It just really does seem like an extraordinary thing. And you're probably used to this by now, but was there a point in your career or your training where you said, or did you have a mentor who brought you into this problem to help solve it? That That's a very difficult thing, and I think that's a lot of the criticism and concerns I get for being young. I don't really have a true cell biology or cell therapy mentor because the whole field of especially cardiac cell therapy is you know just within the last five to seven years really developed 
mean, I've been working on some of these cells since the early to mid-90s. I just haven't used them clinically Mm -hmm. in patients. So it really is, and I have a lot of other mentors in, you know, surgery, heart surgery, and other things that help in terms of all the pieces and puzzles. But in terms of really cells, I work with a lot of people, but I don't have sort of a guru-type person to go ask, hey, I'm going to work on this, what do you think? I usually work with a lot of the heart failure experts and heart disease and even cell people, but there isn't someone out there who really has all of that already known. So you're inventing the field or inventing this approach. And it really was a leap of faith then to say... It it is. I mean, we, as strange as it sounds, I mean, you know, I'm a ripe old age of 33, but we're all pioneers in this now because we've been doing it for a while, but we don't know all the answers. We're not even close to that. But we keep working on figuring out how can we get these answers in patients. And along the way, I don't think we should stop, you know, treating patients until we figure out all the answers. I mean, these are the patient's own cells. Mm -hmm. Could they do something bad? Yeah. But, I mean, all the patients who get the therapy, they're sort of at the end of the road. How do you look at someone in the face and say, I have absolutely nothing to offer you? Now, it may be experimental, and that's why, I mean, we tell them very honestly, the likeliness that this works in you is small, but the chance is always there. So just say you had you know, right in the middle stage of heart failure. And you look around, you go to all the different internet search engines and you read the newspapers and all the science journals and you'll see that cell therapy is happening. Now you're like, well, I'm worried something bad might happen. Well, it's always possible something bad may happen. But if you have the worst stages of heart failure, you have less than 50% chance of surviving for five years. You're still waiting for that heart. So if you get cell therapy where you use your own cells and it doesn't work, you still can get a heart transplant. You still so that options. doesn't you take you off that list. You still can get a ventricular assist device. That's what's the great thing about autologous or using your own cells for cell therapy. They're not rejected. They They're don't not. cause inflammation or anything that'll... Nothing that will, they may cause a number of things, but nothing that will prevent you from getting a heart transplant or a ventricular assist device. That's what the great thing about it is. Now, does that bother a lot of scientists? Of course it does, because they're used to doing the pharma therapy sort of way. You come up with a novel molecule. You do, you know, a lot of bench testing. You do small animal, medium animal, large animal, and then three phases of human studies. And then after 10 years, you put it out on the market. And then someone does a phase four study and finds there's something wrong with your drug and you have a billion-dollar recall. And we've seen more and more of that, that the standard way of testing medications, it isn't flawed, but it isn't ideal because there are so many things that you see in patients that just doesn't happen in animals. So all the animal cell therapy models that are out there, if you cause a heart attack in a mouse... Now, you're causing it instantaneously, you cause scarp, and you put cells in, and all the mice get better. No matter what cells you put in, almost all of them have shown some sort of improvement. But that's not how real heart disease happens in patients. It happens over many years from either plaques of cholesterol or hardening of the arteries. So it's a very different physiology. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not treating the same sort of disease, and people don't realize that. So when they always ask for animal models, and a lot of the cell types we use don't even exist in animals. The markers haven't been identified. Does that mean we should automatically stop? No. I think if we inform the patients of the risks and they know that this truly is experimental, and it may not help you at all, but thus far the likeliness that it will hurt you is pretty small. Was part of that leap of faith you took to begin this process a reaction to the frustration of telling heart patients? Because I know you're a cardiothoracic surgeon by training. Was it a reaction to the frustration of not having options for patients who are very sick? Not having options and not having options for patients all over the world who can't afford these therapies. Mm -hmm. We talked about the cost of the current state of the art. What is the average cost of a therapy like this? So cell therapy runs somewhere between ten and forty thousand. So it seems some cells cost more than others. <laughs> some cells cost more than others, but some cells are processed differently. I so I mean, it is true. It's it's probably less expensive to process bone marrow, but you do have to get a big harpoon in your hip mm-hmm. to harvest the bone marrow. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you get a blood derived cell product then it does cost more because you have to process it and culture it, but it's technically less invasive. Do we truly know if they're equivalent? No, but a lot of the very early patients that have been treated have had similar results. Is there anything on the horizon that you want to talk about that is going to wow us down the road a little bit? I'd say realistically that you're going to see within the next six months patients, actual humans, being treated for Parkinson's. That would be marvelous. And diabetes. Wow. And if it's children, you may actually see cures. And based on people who work with me or know me, they know I only say things when I know they've already been planned or about to happen. So it's not even just forward thinking. You're talking about bone marrow-derived cells that have been, or also cells from blood? Both. Both that have been coaxed to differentiate or develop into certain cell types. Say, if we're... Curing Parkinson's into neurons. That produce dopamine. Working. They may, may not be true neurons, but they are cells that I produce see. dopamine. Or for diabetes, these cells may not themselves produce insulin, but there may be a similar fusion-type reaction that actually will help cells produce the right amount of insulin. Or, more importantly, if you filter out the right type of cells, actually block the antibodies that cause diabetes. I was going to ask about that because what's the good of putting in an insulin-producing cell into a type 1 diabetic if their own immune response is going to kill that cell? That you're right. saying they could also block that immune response and allow that cell to survive. And Correct. That would be really so, great. And that's why regenerative therapy, the way that we understand it today, truly isn't what it is in the future because everyone hopes that we're just creating new cell types. Whereas it may be that we're not creating new cells, we're just finding better ways to modulate or change the environment of the cells that already have the ability to do the right thing. And what's next for you? Going to Disneyland? Actually, I think we need to go to a Don Ho show (laughs) and (laughs) see how it's doing. (laughs) That would be good. I mean, realistically, we have between 8 and 10 new adult cell types everything from fat-derived, muscle-derived, different types of blood cells, bone marrow cells, amniotic cells, umbilical cord. I mean, the number of therapies that we have going at the early science level, I mean, every week 
we have some new version of it. We're working on not only different cell types, but how could we train the cells? So everyone has seen on TV or in some movie how you have lab rats on the little wheels and all that. So we actually do that to cells. Hmm. We actually make them run marathons. How do you do that? Electrically. You stimulate them and you actually make them work harder and see. Just like if your regular muscles, if you work out, your muscles get bigger and stronger. So let's see if we could do that with cells. If you train them to go down the right path, do they become stronger? Do they produce more enzymes or do they produce more proteins that we need if you put them in the right environment? We also look at, well, when you inject these cells, you know that most of them get washed away. So how is it possible that the few cells that remain do all this magical work? So we've also looked at how do we make the cells stay longer in the environment? So we've looked at different gels and other scaffoldings that when we inject with the cells, will make the cells stay longer in the tissue. In the short time this podcast has been around, we talk about scaffolding nearly every podcast. But I will remind listeners that it's usually a synthetic substance or a combination of synthetics and natural materials that sort of supports cells as they... or tissues as they grow or differentiate or develop. And then it sounds like with the gels, what they do is they degrade and go away and release the right factors as they do that. Is that the case? Sure. That's the fancy way of explaining it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, like, at the end of the day, I'm just looking for super glue. <laughs> that if I put the cells in there and I have some sort of glue that makes the cells stay there yeah. until they've done what they're going to do but not interfere with them because it prevents them from migrating or releasing factors... That's probably the perfect glue, but since we're talking science, you have to call it a matrix. Right, right. You know, for a surgeon, you don't really like to stitch a lot, I've noticed, or cut. You know, we <laughs> cut and sew when we need to. <laughs> well, good, and it sounds like you're not cutting or sewing when you don't need to, which might be even more important. So That's the key. So you'd like to see heart transplants become a thing of the past? I'd like to. Now, is it going to? Probably not, because not everyone in the country is going to have access or the ability to know that they have severe heart disease. A lot of heart disease is found just incidentally. And so by that time, sometimes it is too late. Mm -hmm. So are heart transplants, assist devices, are all those things going to go away? No. The goal of cells is not to replace everything out there. It's to take everything that's out there and make it work better. And no, it's not a 3M commercial. <laughs> <laughs> or for superglue. That's it. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for joining us today, and we'll look for more news about you in Great. the future. Well, thank you for having me. For those of you interested in learning more about Dr. Patel's work, please see the links we've posted at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. AJ, tell us what our next podcast is about. In podcast number six, we'll talk with Dr. Andres Garcia. His lab is working on ways to make synthetic materials more compatible with human tissues. That's coming in late March. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or if you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email. The address is mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. 
We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, which is sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. The feed can be found at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you.